Welcome to the Stellar Labs podcast, Future Learning Today. At Stellar Labs, our mission is to bust the technology skills crunch with effective, measurable, engaging training. We consult on, design, and deliver the technical and people skills and competencies you need in business. In these podcasts, you'll hear from industry experts and practitioners from the worlds of technology and training. They'll share their experience, insights, and inspiration, and their visions for the future with you. Keep listening to start your future learning here today. So hello, and welcome back to the Stellar Labs podcast. I'm Stella Collins, Chief Learning Officer at Stellar Labs, and I'm delighted today to be in conversation with Jocelyn Dabrudi. Jocelyn is Chief Information Officer at SecureX, who offer HR, insurance, talent management, training and recruitment, a range of things uh, through Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Spain and Luxembourg. And I know they have great aspirations to be the partners of choice for all things work related. Jocelyn herself says that success is all about getting the right people on board and together to do the right things and enjoy achieving greater results for people, planet and prosperity, which I think is fantastic, Jocelyn. So welcome to the today's conversation. Thank you very much, Stella, for the wonderful introduction. and Thanks for having me. So one of the things that Jocelyn and I have been talking about, elephants in the room, and specifically elephants in the boardroom. If for any reason you don't know what an elephant in the room is, here's a definition from Wikipedia. They're important or enormous topics, questions or controversial issues that are obvious or that everybody knows about, but nobody mentions or wants to discuss because it makes them feel uncomfortable or it's personally, socially or politically embarrassing, controversial, inflammatory or dangerous. But there seems to be a bigger risk with not dealing with the elephant in the room than tackling the elephant in the room. So, Jocelyn, we started having this conversation a few weeks ago, and I'd really love to know what you think are some of the elephants in the boardroom that impact on people, organisation and, and society. I think as your definition of elephant in the room already explains, it's a very, very broad topic and you see it everywhere. And, uh, well, in society, in your private life, in organizations, in boardrooms, so everywhere there are elephants. What is important, I think, uh, is to really understand what kind of elephants are we talking about and what are the underlying assumptions creating them. Sometimes the elephant is just a perception, it's a shadow of a mouse that everybody thinks is an elephant in the room which those are the easy elephants you can address it you can name it and they disappear and everybody has a good laugh about it but sometimes those elephants are have very 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 deep underlying uh, assumptions that go into the cultural background of the people who are involved the way companies or people uh, perceive power and where does their power come from. So all these different elements kind of have impact on the elephant. So it would be a bit naive, I think, if we can uh, say that we can approach 
all these different types of elephants in the same way and uh, or even put a time stamp on it that if you do this and this and this within a day or two or a month or two your elephant will disappear so it's very important to really understand where does it come from what are the underlying assumptions there and how does that really impact people is this really embarrassment is it a personal advantage is this somebody's world falling apart because of it so it's very important to really address the underlying assumptions that's really interesting could you give us a a quick example of perhaps one of these smaller elephants first the ones that you said perhaps are really a mouse hidden as an elephant and then um and then perhaps some examples of the the bigger elephants the more important ones yeah sometimes it's uh, for a lot of people um an assumption that when you are talking to your superiors that you should not argue and a Ah, lot of people start with that dynamic going into an interaction with their superior so the more yes I say probably I am improving my own relationship with the superior or probably they even appreciate that Uh, and I, I should not mention anything that I think they don't know that I don't really um, put their ego in danger. So those are the type of things that a lot of people take as an assumption when they engage with their superiors. And that is could be an elephant, could be really true, but in most cases, it's not. If you really treat your superior as a human being, you will realize that what they don't know, they are interested to know. They want to learn. But just because you think that they know everything or you think that they pretend to know everything, you're creating a wall that you cannot get beyond and you cannot even have a decent relationship, let alone addressing any potential elephants. That's a really interesting example. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday um, and we were talking about how that can be the same with if you're um, a supplier to a client that you don't you don't always feel you should um, challenge the supplier, but actually that can often be where they come from. Yeah, so it's, it's, it is really important that uh, you really get past those assumptions. So for some for some reason, there they might even be your own elephants. <laughs> the yeah. assumptions that you are making about someone else, they could be your elephants. Maybe even if you get philosophical about it, maybe it's better to address our own elephants before we address someone else's or the whole organization's elephants. But uh, so it's important to really understand where we come from, where the other person comes from, what is the, uh, and, and, and keep asking, keep asking questions. And sometimes it helps, it's a little bit, uh, women are, have a tendency of being more comfortable with asking questions than men. And sometimes that is a privilege for a, a female leader just to play dumb. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. It sometimes helps just to play dumb and ask innocent questions. Why is it like that? Why is it that we don't talk about that? Why is it that I just want to understand? And in a men world, they accept it a lot easier from a woman asking that question than another, another man. man. 
sometimes it's, it helps just to be the woman, just to be the, the one who plays dumb and speaks up, let them think whatever they want to think, but at least you address an issue. <laughs> I, I often don't need to play dumb. I really do need to know the answer to those questions. <laughs> and I think that comes from a, a place of, of curiosity very often that, you know, you, you, you sort of suddenly recognize that you don't know what somebody else is talking about, but you're actually curious about it as opposed to as opposed to feeling dumb or stupid, then I think that element of, oh, that's that's an interesting idea that the person has raised. So, yeah, I, I don't tend to play dumb. I'm just very curious and often ask these questions anyway. <laughs> I will not tell you when I really do it intentionally or not, but <laughs> I'm happy to be called dumb. I don't think anybody would ever do that, Jocelyn. <laughs> so what about some of these perhaps more... The bigger ones, the ones that you, you've seen that have, have perhaps caused bigger challenges? In, 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 in a boardroom. I mean, mm. in society, yeah. we, see, we see a lot of them in, in, in our in political world. There, there are tons of them. And uh, somehow, I don't think that we in organizations can make an exception and say we are living in a world that is full of things that nobody wants to really address it. In a, in a right way or in a structural way. And how can we expect that those kind of things don't have a reflection in the organizations? Just take uh, discrimination as an example. When it, when it is so heavy in the society, how can you not expect that it plays no role in the organization? Or uh, climate change. Yeah, so it's a topic that is kind of impacting everybody and every business these days pretending to do something about it. I intentionally use the word pretend because I think we are not addressing climate change as an as an issue that is really serious and we are really addressing what are the root causes, what is it that we are talking about? We are we are addressing it too much on the surface. And if you go back into really the mechanics of a learning uh, society or a learning organization, you know that behavior is just on the surface yeah but we are so keen to kind of generalize the behavior and put people in the corner so that they can by pretending that they are doing something else that they have create a perception that they have corrected their behavior and we are happy with that and that pretend is enough for us to kind of have addressed that issue but we need to really go deeper we need to there is no behavior that by itself exists behavior is a result of a system and if you cannot address the system how can you expect that behavior never happen again we talk about uh, hitler right but we never talk about what was the system that created him that's a very interesting point yeah and, and what was the mental model of the society underlying there that really caused it to get there he, was he a result of something or he was a creator of something but we don't address that so how can we expect if we don't address that discussion that we can eliminate genocide from all the years to come for human beings so it is uh, the, the whole discussion goes a lot deeper than just uh, an organization. If we don't change our behavior as human beings, if we don't really change our attitude and change our mental, uh, and change our mindset about things, how can we expect that 
we come into organizations and we totally behave differently. And do you think, Jocelyn, that by changing your behavior, you can begin to change the system? By changing your behavior, you can change the system if you are really genuine about the behavior change. If, uh, if, if the behavior change is as a result of, again, the word pretend, if I'm pretending that I'm changing my behavior, no, the system will not change. But if I'm changing my behavior because I really believe that that has to stop, like uh, the discussion about meat these days. Yeah, the uh, meat is not healthy; it's not good for the planet. La 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 la. And a lot of people pretend like, well, if I stop eating meat, the problem will go away. No, the problem will not go away if you stop eating meat. Problem will go away if we address the meat and the animals that we kill for the meat differently. I'm not saying that we should not change our behavior until we change the system. System is a collection of all of us. Yeah. Yeah. But we cannot do it either or. We have to do it gradually, change the behavior, change the system, and go change our mental model, and then come back one by one so that we gradually address all of that. We cannot stay on the surface and not address the the core of the problem. But I know that behavior, you know, we can sometimes nudge people into behaviors that perhaps they're not even quite sure they're addressing those things. I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of, of recycling. Um, and I, I know there's been some work around that where people are encouraged to recycle and eventually they find that they've actually become passionate about recycling. So the kind of the behavior is almost led to the to the thinking, because if we see ourselves behaving in a particular way, if our beliefs don't match with that behavior, we end up with cognitive dissonance and feel deeply uncomfortable. So I guess changing the behaviors can begin to a- adjust the attitudes and the mental the mental models we have too. Yes, it, it, it can uh, and it should. But if we address the system as well as the behavior, it will speed up the process. So you, you suggest you, doing both? I suggest doing both. And I suggest even going one level deeper. Why? And go ask the why questions. Why is even, even our system like that and then you come into the uh, mental models yeah in in a world example is, is, is a very very easy example about uh, yeah, your women when the assumption is that women cannot lead yeah then you end up in a system that women will not be in leadership position and then you come to the behavior and then you ask men to behave differently when their mental model is women cannot lead mm-hmm. So he changes his behavior, he hires a couple of women, and then uh, he expects them to act like a woman and follow when the man nods. Eh? But then you, you, then you see that the real problem is not being addressed and is not being solved. So we need to talk about all the different, different levels. While behavior is something that we see, we can reward, we can punish. But with the system and mental model, we have to have different different tactics and different strategies to address them. And as long as we haven't addressed them, things will remain on the on the surface. So I think with that example you're talking about, you know, one of the mental models or, we, or the systemic things we could look at is actually what is leadership? What does leadership look like? Because it may be that, um, well, I mean, clearly women can lead, but they may choose a different form of leadership that's perhaps exactly. isn't really the form that has been um, prevalent until until now. Yeah, exactly. So you're touching actually the the core of the problem. 
your definition of leadership. Mm. If you if you can have a conversation, if you can have a debate about that, then probably the impact and in uh, and on the behavior will be far more different than what we see now. Yeah, because people can then can begin to make choices about what leadership looks like and what leadership behaviors are appropriate, and that changes who who may who may be very good at leading. Exactly. So if you look at for example, take the climate change as an example. There is a huge difference in the mental model of the different generations looking at it. If you talk to a nine-year-old, it's, it's just no way and nothing in what we do on a daily basis is okay for them because there's a totally different different uh, mental model. They, they think totally different about our planet. We, we come from a generation that we own everything. It's ours. It's my position. But the new generation is all about sharing and passing it on to the next generation. So if you, you see that when you, when you compare it at that level, oh, yeah, it is not mine. I'm here temporarily, and then the generations to come also have to take something from it. And then you see that, oh, if that's what I, how I think about climate change, of course, I have to treat the planet in a different way. Then it's my piece of ground, so I do whatever I want with it. There's... Um... There's been some really interesting stories, I think, from from the past where people would, for example, and there's some lovely ones, would plant a tree that would not be in fruition until it was 200 years old. And somebody would ask this person, but why have you planted that tree? You'll never see it. You'll never see it grow to maturity. Well, that doesn't matter because the tree will still be there and, and there will be future people there. So that's kind of what you're talking about there, I think. Is exactly. It? Yeah. Yes, exactly. I spoke to... Um, a very interesting person yesterday, the uh, CEO of Or Or Academy, Or Academy, I think it's called, and she was talking about um, Dubai have a 50-year plan. They're, they're planning to, um, you know, transform their nation for the next 50 years. And and both Raf and I were kind of amazed because we thought, well, most of our European countries, they don't even have a 10-year plan. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's a very very interesting thing, even even in organizations. Whatever you do, you have to look at it as something that you will be long gone and the results will be there. But we've come to the to, to, to a world that we only look at the next first next quarter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The quarterly thinking is 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 a yeah. very strange thing, really, isn't it? Because over a quarter you anything can impact on what happens in the quarter. Whereas actually if you have a a longer term view of it you know there's going to be ups and downs, you know there's going to be swings, you know there's going to be roller coaster rides, but it's about where you come out at the end, wherever the end may be. And funny uh, relation between that, thinking in quarters and the elephants is actually, elephants are normally the things that we put aside to be able to focus on the quarter. So somehow we are making it even bigger just by not talking about it because it doesn't have an impact in the next three months or the quarter that we are focusing on. So that even that helps some of the elements to stay unspoken. So they, they, they kind of are there, but because they don't have an impact on my immediate future, why bother? That's a really interesting idea. Do you have a, a, any examples or where people have changed that thinking and it's had an impact? Or what do you think might happen? Uh, yeah, let me let me give an example there. We are quite uh, actually used to the cycle of planning, doing, checking, you know, in every organization. And we are quite uh, 
proud of it. And if we do really a good job, we plan, do, check, act, and we encourage everybody, everybody to do it until it's not working anymore. You go around and around and around and nothing gets better because you checked it and you implemented but you're not getting any better in it. You need mm-hmm. to take one step back. You need to go into looking at the big picture and start from the assumptions that you uh, build your plan according to the assumptions. And then, then question those assumptions. I don't know if you're familiar with the double loop learning. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it is very important for organizations. Um, sometimes it also kind of gets uh, integrated with the with the egos, with the power structure of, of the company. We expect assumptions to be valid all the time. So we make assumptions, we move on, and we build a lot of things based on those assumptions. And there are very few people who dare to come back and say, was that the right assumption? What kind of feedback system did I put in place to validate my assumption? Not to validate my plan but also to validate my assumption. And then you see that the cycle of you make an assumption based on the assumptions, you make a plan. And then you go into the cycle of uh, plan, do, check, act. Coming back to the underlying assumption takes more than a quarter. Yeah. Maybe takes even more than a year. It takes a few years to really see the impact of that assumption in your organization and who the bigger your organization, the longer it takes to really, really see that assumption in action. What was the impact of that one fundamental assumption that we made on the whole organization or on our all customers? And if that takes more than a year, so you need to have a helicopter view that is more than a year, more than 10 years, more than 20 years, and you see that in different industries, that cycle sometimes is quite long. What oil industry, the impact of oil industry is on, on, on society, on, on health, on climate. So those are cycles that are far longer than just a quarter, a year, or five years. So if you now put this back into the what we call system thinking, we as managers tend to take every complex problem I'm, I'm, I really like doing that. It's for me quite quite fun, the puzzling part. They take every complex problem and then chop it off into small pieces. Because then when there are small pieces, you can go solve them. You can delegate them to different people that they can go address that one small problem. But very few of our leaders go back and then put them together again to be able to see the big picture. So we get a lot of we get a lot of success, don't we? We enjoy solving the small problems. But if we don't go back, what you're saying is if we don't go back and look at the big picture again and put all those solutions together, you so may you, we, you may create more problems. Yeah. Did we address that one big complex problem or we have a sum of smaller problems that we solved and we cannot put them together anymore because they have deviated from the main problem that we were trying to solve and the main problem is not solved yet. Again, a very good example of that very complex is climate change. Take that one and then we we try to translate it in all different ways. We are doing a lot of things, but they are not really solving that climate impact of climate change. So it is important that we we do both, that we break down a complex problem into small pieces and we put the pieces together. So a leader really has to go back and forth in big picture, and then smaller zoom in into certain problems, but go, go back and forth 
to not to miss the real result of what we are trying to change. This this is this is so interesting. I can I can feel my brain beginning to to kind of really open up here, Jocelyn. Um, how much? I mean, how, how can we spot these elephants in the room? Is is there a way to sort of identify them apart from just asking yourself what assumptions am I making? Uh, well, there are there are certain funny things that you can really feel that there is an elephant. You know, I've been to a lot of companies in the very, very, very short assignments in companies and then going into uh, a multinational company and then evaluating where, what the problem is and then coming back and making a proposal that we can solve all your problems. You know, the consulting world that we, we, we <laughs> thought we had answered to all the questions. Uh, but it at least helped me to use my ears and eyes to see things. Things that are not being said, things are not, you know, the body language, the dynamic, the all the things that are not being said. So you kind of get used to that fact to capture all this information. And if you're really working in a very nice team, everybody picks up something and you put them together and then you see, oh, that's interesting uh, what we are what we are seeing from. So there are some clues that you can tell if if people are sitting in a meeting and then there's a very long silence. People are rolling their eyes. And there, these are things that everybody's waiting for someone to say something, but <laughs> it's not happening. And uh, so everybody is ready to be the second one, but the first one is not happening. And then somebody changes the subject. So those are the moments that you can, you really have to think about what was it, what happened? Was there something? Something was not said. And then look for what was not said. But we move on. We move on to the next subject and we go. And we, we, we kind of don't stand still in those uh, silence. I, I think silence is a very, very interesting thing. When you allow people to stay in that silence for a few minutes, the, the, the truth comes out. It's a very interesting exercise. I uh, I talk too much, so at some point I, I I kind of was practicing to stay quiet, just see what happens, and then every time that I, I'm trying that I see in very interesting things. So then, the, if if you have that, then you see there is something, you don't know yet what, yeah. And my advice there is don't make assumptions, just ask, ask people what was that, what happened, what were you thinking, what were you thinking, and you're not talking about. But we need to be careful to, uh, you know, because this is, uh, this is sometimes I think this whole discussion is a little bit like a Pandora box because you really don't know what is behind that elephant. If that elephant is something that is personally touching someone, it's uh, someone's personal failure that is causing it. It's something that they are afraid of. Uh, is, 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 so you really need to understand where the that come from be before you make any judgment or be before you generalize something. Uh, so just ask questions one-on-one, one, one on one, all the people that are in that room. One in your next one-on-one, -on -one, ask people, so what was that about? What were you thinking? I was thinking this, what were you thinking? And then gradually you collect data. And then when you have all the data, then you can say, okay, so, and then go validate. Is this correct that every time that we come to this topic that we avoid it because of what happened 10 years ago? Is it because of we don't know how to address it? Is it because we don't have the competency or we don't have the capacity or this is a no-go area? But 
keep keep asking until you can name it. And then when you can really call it what it is, then people are a lot more eager to, to address it. But don't jump into conclusions that fast, which is also a tendency that a lot of us have. We are all human beings. We, we like to take one thing and generalize it to everything. And uh, in that generalization, not only you make stupid mistakes, you make mistakes, you make wrong judgments, but also you damage the trust if yeah. you too fast jump jump into conclusions. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, the idea of um, noticing and commenting and, and asking are quite different to the process of judging. Yes, exactly. So if, if if you are not careful, if you if you are addressing the elephant in the room and you are making fun of it, nobody's going to help you resolve it. But, but if you are sincere about why is actually that elephant relevant, does it stop us from making progress here or there, or or is just because yeah, well, from personal interest because I I see a failure in someone else and I want to take advantage of it. Because if it is the second one, then you're not going to succeed. You have to be sincere about addressing the elephant in the benefit of the company, benefit of the organization, or even benefit of that individual. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to lead you to a good results. So it's about addressing it with a mentality to, to resolve it and to make things better rather than for it to be something that's, that's for you. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of having an ethical, ethical mindset in that conversation. Yeah. So can you give us any examples, Jocelyn, of, of, I know in the last conversation we had, you mentioned a couple of examples that you think of, uh, are in the boardroom quite commonly um, and that perhaps cause these pro- problems. And I know one of the ones you mentioned last time was the idea that leaders or senior people or experts often don't like to, they don't like to be seen to not know the answers. Or, or even the other way around, that people want to perceive their leader as the leader knows everything. Ah, yes. So that's an elephant with two, that's an elephant with two trunks. Yes. And then that, <laughs> that makes it very, very, very difficult to get out of that uh, situation. So it, it is, and, and it kind of actually fuels the problem because if people expect you to know everything has actually a lot of, a lot of downsides because then everybody goes, sits back and wait for you to have all the answers. On the other hand, nobody's learning. And pretending that you know everything is also quite damaging because you are not learning either. So it is, it hurts everybody. But those are the type of things that are kind of cultural. And it's, it's uh, sometimes, again, going back to the, to the system, if everybody expects the leader to have the answer to all the questions, the leader at some point gets so much used to that, then they start even pretending because it's not acceptable not to know the answer. Yeah. So they pretend. And then even sometimes they don't even know that they pretend and they even just say things that are totally, they have no view of what they are talking about. And then, then it starts getting too, too, too complicated. So I think it is very important to uh, understand that this, uh, these are the type of problems that we have, but I, I always have the tendency of having structural fixes to things rather than just uh, solve this incident or that incident. So that's why 
for me as uh, as someone that I have a very technical background, I'm an engineer. So, uh, and I, I start, I fell in love with computers because I just love to take the repetitive work out of the systems that everything that is repetitive, we can lift that up to computers. So we as human beings can go have fun. <laughs> so that was my, my motivation of getting into computer science. But the more I'm, I'm into it and I see actually technology and machines and all of that. It's just, it's just not, not relevant. We are all human beings. And the more we look into this, the dynamics amongst people and the more we can focus, about, focus on solving these issues, we can improve our culture and then everybody is happier. World is a better place. And then we, all, we also see that even uh, ethics become more important. So we need to really focus on how do we create an environment that people feel safe to speak about what they really think. It's yeah. not a crime to think about something, but you have to feel safe to share it with other people. If you don't share what you can, what you think, how can you improve that? Yeah, and I think the work that um, Amy Edmondson's been doing on psychological safety is really a valuable way to access that. How do you create that feeling within a group, a team, a family, an environment? It could be anywhere where people do feel it's okay to to step up and, and ask the question. Ask the question, challenge things, have critical thinking, uh, surround yourself. You have an idea and then go find the facts. And I think there's something around um, when people do ask a question, other people not uh, not jumping to the conclusion that you're being criticised. I can give you a really a really daft example of that, a silly example. Uh, when we lived in um, the UK, we had chickens, and every night somebody had to put the chickens to bed. And usually it was me, but it wasn't always. And sometimes I would just ask the question, has anybody put the chickens to bed? And initially the response was, yes, I've done it. Of course I've done it. You know, somebody, somebody would say, I've done it. Of course I've done it. And it was quite a sort of, um, you know, it was as if they thought I was asking a, an accusatory question, whereas actually it was an informational seeking question. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually we had this, this kind of, we discussed this one day in, in the family and said, look, when I asked the question, has anybody put the chickens away? It's just about information. It's about keeping the chickens safe. Um, and we then ended up with that as a kind of metaphor in our family, that if you were about to ask a question that you thought people might take wrong, you'd just preface it with, I have to ask you a chicken's question. I just need the information. And then you could ask the question. Then that person, they were already signaled that, you know, this wasn't about accusation or blame. This was mm-hmm. informational seeking. That worked really well in our family. Yeah, that's that's a very good example because it, I think every woman can have those kind of examples. If you ask your husband, have you done that? The first answer is, I didn't have time to go. So it's not, it's just, you're asking the question, is it done or not? But you get an answer, a long list of excuses that why they didn't do it so far. (laughs) I have to say, I'm quite lucky with my husband. He doesn't tend to respond like that, but... Okay, so what what other examples might you, have you seen from? Because you have a you know huge experience across a whole range of different industries. What are other examples have you seen in in the boardroom of of elephants? One example popped up in my mind that is extremely funny. In one of the companies that I worked uh, with, they had a taboo which was called credit cards. So you couldn't even talk about credit cards. 
So, and we, we at, at, in IT, we had a lot of things that you had to buy online, purchase subscriptions, and you could pay with, with credit cards. And every time that we, we wanted to do that, you had to ask the supplier, can you send us an invoice? It goes through the whole cycle of uh, the whole procurement and all of that. So I got fed up with that. And I went upstairs to the finance and I said, you guys, can we start talking about credit cards? We don't talk about credit cards here. We don't talk about credit cards. No. Okay. Uh, then I, I used my own personal credit card for a while and then uh, in, uh, in expensing all the, all the stuff so you cannot do the IT operation continuously on your own credit card. For the second time, I went upstairs and said, yeah, guys, we need to really talk about credit cards. And I'm not leaving until we really talk about it. <laughs> and <laughs> I, this, is, this is crazy. So I figured out that actually sometime in their organization, the CEO abused the credit card. And then that incident, they tried to bury that incident and somebody else abused another credit card. So they kind of said, we are not going to ask credit card for anybody. And uh, for 10 years, they kept it that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent, an excellent, really good example. So you've, um, Jocelyn, you've, you've given some really good examples about how we might spot elephants uh, in the room and um, we've talked a little bit about some examples of how you might go about addressing it. What are the results of addressing these elephants in the boardroom? Uh, well of course the very direct result of it is uh, is uh, trust because uh, you cannot really discuss the elephant in the room if people don't trust each other and if you can have a conversation about them that's already a sign that there is a trust in the team And uh, I don't have to emphasize that enough how important trust is for teamwork. I think it's not it's not everybody in leadership knows that you cannot do anything alone. You cannot do anything alone. And doesn't matter whether your leadership style is dictatorship or whatever leadership style that you might have. uh, You cannot do it alone. So you need a team around you and a team will not function if there is no trust in it. At every level in an organization, you need to have a team that you can fully trust, a team that trusts each other, everybody in the team trusts each other. And if you have at least addressed one elephant in that team, then that's an indication that we are building up the trust. Like, uh, you know, girls have a habit of telling each other all their secrets, and that's a way to measure how much we can trust each other. Yeah, that's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, just I think that the get out further. <laughs> exactly. So the elephants actually are a way to measure how much trust is in the team. And then how you discuss the elephant, how you address the elephant, what you learned from it, and then how you destroy that elephant. And then after you have done that, how much of this is being used against the team or against that individual? These are all things that gradually build up the, the trust in, in, in a team. And, and if, if, if you manage it, if you manage to do it properly, that improves the teamwork. And with, with that team, you can then achieve a lot of things that for a lot of people might seem impossible. And, and those are the beautiful moments in leadership that you see that as a team, you are so much in flow that you are doing things that actually is far, far bigger than the sum of the individual's. That's a really nice way of thinking about it, which which makes me wonder, I mean, are the teams where there aren't elephants or do elephants pop up regularly and you just have to keep an eye out for them? Um, 
it will not become an elephant if you do it regularly, right? Right. So it becomes an elephant if you not attend to it. And if you let it stay there for it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you create a, a culture and openness, a safe environment that people can share their thoughts and uh, question everything. So you, you know the whole fact of uh, critical thinking. A lot of people stay even in the world of, uh, you say, critical thinking. They are stuck in the critical and they reject it. So if you allow people to think to be critical about everything that they hear. Not every piece of data is relevant or is a fact or is true. You have to validate your sources. You have to validate if this data is correct or not. You are allowed to question. But if you do not create that kind of environment that people go look for the right information, that people put the information together, they connect the dots, they can uh, draw some conclusions. They can they can play with the information that they have. They create knowledge and insight. Then I don't know uh, what what is it that you really want to achieve in that organization. Sometimes I I feel like the whole idea of selling a little bit more or uh, getting a little bit more revenue has changed the way that we think about the the mission of a company. We used to, in old days, there was a discussion about whether mission comes first or vision. You know, that mm -hmm. conversation is mission more important than, than vision. Uh, at the end of the day, when you have a business, you want to do someone. But down the line, we forget about what was actually the purpose of having this organization. What is it that we want to achieve? What is it that we want to, to do better than anybody else? Not only staying in business, but do it better than, better than others to increase your impact. And how do you want to do that if you cannot open your eyes and ears and to see what's happening and then put those things together? What can I do differently? A lot of elephants are created in the fixed mindset that nothing has changed and I don't want to see the change. I'm comfortable in the old. I don't want to see the new. I think we also need to look at it from the other side. I like to change my kind of perspective when, when I look at different problems. Yeah. The ones who have the elephant probably are, are not also the ones that want to keep it forever. They also probably want to get rid of it. They don't know maybe how. So I think that's important. If you even look at this from that perspective, you are doing them a favor by naming it and addressing it and getting rid of it and solving it. And then, then you don't have to ever talk about it anymore because the elephant is not there anymore. I think that's a, a really valuable um, insight to, to, to recognize that, you know, it actually does do people a favor very often by removing that elephant whilst they don't want to deal with it. And nobody within the, the group wants to acknowledge it. If somebody can come from an external or potentially external or maybe just from a internal but from a different perspective that if we can get rid of this elephant for you then your life will be so much easier yeah and um, jocelyn we've, we've come to the end of our of our podcast time and um, this has been a really interesting um conversation and i really thank you for um some really quite impactful um thinking i've got a lot to reflect on so thank you very much for that and i'm quite sure at some point we will continue this conversation thank you so thank much you. for being here today Thank you, Stella. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please share it with your friends and colleagues and visit our website, stellalabs.eu, to learn more about what we do and how we do it. Tune into the next episode.